This is Luke Fritch, fifth generation farmer. Welcome to the Prairie Farm Podcast. Ken's going to pull us in. I'm going to color and uh, we'll see how it goes from here. Oh, this is going to be fun, guys. This is going to be fun. In three, two, one. Luke, it's so good to have you here because you're my best friend for one. And two, we're talking about stuff that you and I have spent how many hours, uh, you know, usually it starts out, I'm driving home from work or something. Then I get inside and I'm like halfway getting my work clothes off, halfway, uh, you know, like picking up a kid in one arm, holding them while we just get carried away in a conversation about all the things that are wrong with the world, that are wrong with farming and uh, how it translates back to what's wrong with the ecosystems around us and everything else. And uh, it's just a real treat to have you here. But I want to start off, we'll, we'll do a more thorough introduction here in a second, but I want to start off with you explaining your, I guess the correct word here is relationship with where you live, the backstory, all that. Okay. Well, I appreciate the welcoming and thanks for having me on here. I grew up in western Illinois. It's a county called Mercer County. And if you look at the map, it's where the Mississippi River on the north side of our area runs east and west. So that's kind of an easy way to identify it. Mm -hmm. I grew up where I live right now. My great-great-grandfather, who would have came over from Ireland in the late mid-late 1800s, probably homesteaded that were the area that we're on right now he was probably the second wave of people to come as far as european immigration went in that era he built the house that we live in towards the end of his life really when did he do that uh that was in 1921 or 1920 not sure on the exact year so it just hit its 100 year mark yeah mm-hmm so I've got three daughters, and they're the sixth generation to live on this particular farmstead. That is so cool. Uh, my father lives a mile away from me on another farmstead that's been in the family pretty much this entire time. Uh, I would say, from what I've read as far as what was going on back then with the Homestead Act and how townships were subdivided into square miles we probably started out with 320 acres which would be half of a section a a square mile 640 acres then two 80s were added on i would assume later but i don't necessarily know the history of that they've been in the family as long as my grandfather was on the farm you said something about the township act what what is that homestead act homestead act so the homestead act was pretty much an effort to get this area of the united states settled and i'm not sure on all the specifics of that but the federal government was pretty much dishing out ground to whom whomever was willing to live on it Hmm. Uh, some of it didn't have electricity ran to it yet a lot of those roads were early in the surveying process when people came out 
I mean, gravel application as far as surfaces go wasn't really widespread. Mm-hmm. So it would have been a pretty rough time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I, I would imagine you depended on most things to come in and leave on rail. So, yeah. mm-hmm. which our house as well, you look at the architecture of it and there was speculation at one point that that was a Sears home. Um, the Sears company was selling homes back then. They would come in on a rail car and then be distributed wherever. And that could have been the case, but either way, a lot of structures ended up being built back then, hmm. especially on the prairie. So you didn't have an overabundance of timber. Mm-hmm. So that was That's coming crazy. from elsewhere. That's like Sears. They had their magazine coming out. And like on the right-hand page, they had like, you could buy these homes on the left-hand side. Like, you could have this mail-order bride. Just one family, <laughs> all one page. We're ready for you. <laughs> it, crazy how they went bankrupt. I would never have guessed. Yeah. <laughs> you could buy it all from Sears. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so... As you can tell, listening into this, Luke thinks about things a lot more deeply than I would say most people do. Uh, Most people, quite frankly, don't care about that stuff. In fact, Luke and I joke all the time that because we do care about this stuff and we find something, you know, interesting and we try and share it with somebody else, uh, a lot of times we can tell by looking at them that in their mind they're saying, when is this guy going to shut up? (laughs) (laughs) And in the meantime, you can listen to crickets. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. But uh, no, uh, there, there's a deep sense of place, I think, for people who care about such things. You know, th- we associate memories that we've experienced or memories that have been passed down to us from the people that mean a whole lot to us. And um, Luke and I have had a ton of fun wandering all over this farm that he's talking about, these acres that belong to his family. We like to look for... Uh, deer antlers in the spring and we do a little squirrel hunting together and and uh, luke does a lot of deer hunting out there and and so forth and we we plan and talk about that together and and uh i remember one time luke when we were shed hunting i think this was either right after you found that that uh shed that i'm more and more convinced was the other side to that big one that i found and ended up being off of the buck that you shot this year, which is just a giant buck. We should we should use that picture for uh for this uh this this episode, Nick. But okay. um, uh, he shot a giant buck this year, and uh, we were out shed hunting. This would have been in spring of twenty one, and uh, when Luke had stepped into the timber, he found the shed. It was chewed almost down to nothing. Just basically. Basically, the base of the antler was all, there's no tines, nothing like that. Squirrels just annihilated this thing. And then we walked over to the fence line, and uh, you pointed out to me there are these hedge trees from an old hedgerow. So if you aren't familiar with what a hedgerow is, which I wasn't until Luke kind of explained it to me, and I I did a little bit of reading about them. I knew of hedge trees, but I thought – when they were talking about a hedgerow, they were talking about uh, a fence that was made from just using the the timber, the the logs coming from, you know, a hedge tree. But in reality, it was a fence made out of living, <laughs> still Definitely. growing, 
uh, hedge trees that were planted so closely together that like cows wouldn't dare try and wander through them because there's so many sticks hanging down. There, hedge trees are kind of they look like a mess really they, they the branches hang down low and everything towards the ground and they form a natural fence essentially well when we were walked over there there were all these old hedge trees and they live a long time and even when they die they it they take forever to decompose like you can dig up literally i've seen this you can dig up a hundred year old hedge fence post that's just a, a, a branch cut off a hedge tree be a hundred years old sitting below the dirt the dirt level you know where wood rots super fast think of like putting up a a cedar fence around somebody's yard you know that stuff lasts about 20 years and it's totally rotten so this hedge post will be buried you know a foot deep in the earth you dig that up and that thing is still like rock solid hasn't decayed at all That's crazy. it's just such durable wood why aren't we using this for mulch or something <laughs> it, there's not a saw sharp enough to cut <laughs> <Yeah>. it <laughs> it's tough stuff. It, would, it would ruin your chipper huh. but uh so we walk over there's these row of hedge trees and luke says look at that right there you can see where my ancestors cut sections of this tree to make fence posts you can see the cut marks right there a hundred years ago they were cutting on this tree how cool is that? And that is a, a powerful feeling washes over you when you look at something like that and you realize just how tightly intertwined your family is with that ground. And, and, and that's pretty special. Definitely. Yeah, when when you can go back generation after generation and especially when it extends outside of the farmstead like that mm-hmm. and you can see work that's been done on that place and it's been there's a a living log of activity that's been passed down that is a very powerful feeling yeah yep good choice of words by the way living log (laughs) (laughs) yes (laughs) but no that's that's absolutely true there's there's that that testament that testament to what happened here and um when we when we get into this conversation now, so we're going to tell you the other reason for why um, we brought Luke on. This has been a much advertised episode. I think we started ab- advertising this episode maybe back at the Joy Van Weingarten, or was it before? We've then? advertised this more than any other episode. Yeah, yeah. We've we've been yeah. very excited for this one. Yeah, you're making me nervous now. <laughs> uh, but the reason for it is. Uh, everybody likes to hear a good fight, right? And we're not going to fight with each other tonight. We're going to kind of fight with what has happened to agriculture. And we, we're going to try and, and do so respectfully. I think it's only right to do so respectfully. But we are going to call out the, the cold hard facts. And uh, we're going to – some of it's going to be philosophical that – and some of it's we're not going to have the answers to, but there is a major problem, and things aren't getting any better as long as that problem uh, persists. In fact, in a lot of cases, they're getting much worse very rapidly, and so something needs to happen. The first step of that is identifying a problem. But I also heard a podcast interview uh, just last week while I was working from somebody who is a textbook contrarian or a fault finder, you might say, Um, and I would say that Luke and I are by nature, uh, people who swim against the current on most things. 
and uh, we can tend to be fault finders. They both refuse to use deodorant. <laughs> decades. Haven't worn it in decades. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so what somebody said about this person who they were, is after they argued with this contrarian through a whole podcast, and, th- and that's what it was. It was a debate. They said, you got to be careful when you're a fault finder that that you don't just focus so hard on finding fault and never offer solutions or don't offer realistic solutions or all you do is serve the only role you serve is to stir the pot basically. And there's, there's truth to that for sure. And, and I've definitely been guilty of, of falling into that camp sometimes. And that doesn't do much. That doesn't do much good either. So we're going to try and be delicate in the sense of that we don't just do that. We are going to offer some solutions. I have some typed up here that I, I've been thinking of, and Luke and I have talked about a lot of times. Um, that's kind of how we'll close out this show. But this is going to be probably a controversial episode. It's going to be one that you're probably going to get mad at us a few times. Um, please know we still like you. <laughs> and uh, We can disagree and be yeah, friends. That's right. But truly, if we don't address some of these things, they're never going to get better. And um, I think that certain things in our society have more blind spots than others. And agriculture is one is maybe number one for that. Um, I think most people are so far removed from what Luke talked about that uh, they don't know what problems even exist and uh, don't even know how to see them. And so we're going to get into all that. But first, we need to introduce Luke a little bit more than just a guy who's lived on a farm for, you know, like 150 years. And and uh, uh, Luke and I were teachers together. Um, I am no longer. Luke Luke survives. <laughs> yes. But uh, no, we, we, we hit it off pretty much immediately once we started working together. And and uh, we can't, we've become very close friends. And, and uh, even after I moved away to go work with Nicholas, um, Luke and I still stay in touch a lot. We see each other as much as we can. And, and uh, so th- there's, a, there's a lot of things that we enjoy. But as you said, you got a family. Um, your wife is from central Illinois, right? Yep. Uh, around Decatur area. Yep. And... Uh, all natural farmland that's always been farmland there, right? <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> not, a, not a drained wetland or anything like that <laughs> but but uh uh you know that's uh so we appreciate you coming on the show he as you say he lives here in west kind of west central illinois i guess we would say um and yeah not far from the mississippi river um so your dad did he farm full-time always or did he have another job along with farming when you're growing up? So my dad was born in 1952. He so he just turned 70 in December. Wow, happy uh, birthday! But uh, he never worked off the farm. Um, when the farm started out, oh, as a lot of farms on the prairie did, it was mainly for livestock production. And the ground was very suitable for that with the rolling hills and mm-hmm. covering grass. And it would have been a great place f- to graze cattle. Mm-hmm. And 
this doesn't have a whole lot to do with my dad yet, but again, going back to the rail cars, taking everything in and out, you could come to these areas and homestead and raise cattle and take calves in off of rail cars, finish those, that livestock, take it back to the rail car, put it on, and it would be shipped out to wherever that meat was processed. So the livestock was driven on roads or whatever it took to get it to a depot and with limited infrastructure needs. Mm -hmm. Uh, My family continued to finish cows until the 1990s. So a big part of my dad's working days were with livestock. Okay. The grain farm was always secondary and... Was that just a monetary decision or the livestock just took way more work or what? Um, Yeah, initially it was a monetary decision to have livestock because that's how you made your living. And then the grain that you were growing was just to finish those. So they had a lot of hogs and a lot of cows. Uh, In the 1990s, he got out of cows. He was just losing too much money trying to finish cattle out. And... That was, I mean, you can look around the countryside and see all the empty concrete lots and empty pastures. And I mean, 1990s, he was probably late in the game as far as getting out and getting onto the solely corn and soybean model that he's continued with until now. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I I don't know if you guys remember... it was probably still going on when you were a kid. Nick's Nick's much younger than Luke and me. He likes to remind me of this all the time. Yo, but I'm not, not near, forty six years not, old. <laughs> I'm not nearly as old as he claims that I am. But but um, you you may even remember this though, Nick. Um, when we were kids, when you would drive across the countryside, you would always be plugging your nose every five minutes or so because you'd be driving past an open air hog lot. And uh, I can I can tell you where open air hog lots still exist because there's so few of them now. <laughs> like I can be like, oh, I know there's one over by Sigourney, Iowa. I know there's one <laughs> over by New Sharon, Iowa. And yet I've probably driven by, uh, you know, maybe a couple hundred uh, confinement sheds <laughs> in that time or uh, just the number of if they're not in confinement, it's just the number of people actually raising livestock has decreased that much since we were little kids, you know, just that, what, what that was that we were experiencing, you know, 30 years ago, doesn't even exist any longer. Um, mm-hmm. it, it just doesn't, it, it's not, it's not there anymore. So those things that were once so prevalent don't exist anymore. And, and, uh, what, so that ground, it's not that it's no longer, you know, not used. Uh, so, in fact, more ground is used because it's not just growing an amount of crops to feed this livestock. It's now growing an, an amount of crops just strictly for sale. And uh, that's totally changed the game, right? Definitely. Yeah, when you go from a goal of having enough grain to feed out a certain number of livestock and then maybe selling that for whatever on the market to, as you're saying that all you're doing now is you're solely selling that grain 
to either be turned into livestock feed or ethanol or maybe some type of products that humans are consuming as well. But yeah, the saying used to be that the grain walked off of the farm and mm. that's seldom the case anymore. Mm. Right. Yeah. Why, why, why did people switch to corn originally? Cause ethanol wasn't around till 2007 or 2008 or something. Right, yeah. I think 2006 or 2007 is when uh, ethanol, uh, what was it? What do they call it? The ethanol mandates came around and, there's just a big so ethanol would have been used before then, but there's just this huge push to uh, make that a primary fuel source. Not everywhere, um, more certainly more in the Midwest. It's interesting when you drive. So my my relation is, I shouldn't say my relation. My in-laws are all east of here, Ohio and New Hampshire, and so we drive across a good part of the country. And uh, in Iowa, it'll say on your pumps, usually you have the option, it'll be like no ethanol, you know, contains ethanol, contains ethanol, you know, and it'll be a certain octane rating or whatever that you want to purchase for your fuel. But when you go out east, sometimes you won't even see ethanol as an option. Or out west, it's more expensive, like super unleaded, which I believe has more ethanol in it. um, I'm not sure on, on the super unleaded... A designation for that but the yeah i mean it's it's it does seem to be more related to where that corn is growing which actually is kind of a good thing in a sense you know that it's being used where it's grown um that means they're not spending more fo- as much fossil fuel to ship it to yes. <laughs> all <laughs> corners of the country uh but uh anyways the yeah so I guess where we need to direct this conversation instead of just being a historical record here of what, what has happened over the last, you know, few decades is why does any of this matter? And that's where, you know, we take this back to the foundation of this whole conversation has to be uh, conservation and producing so much of of a singular crop or two crops uh, has advantages for sure. And it has disadvantages and just like anything else. Right. And so you got to weigh out what are those, what are those pros and cons? And uh, from a conservation standpoint is where you find almost all of the downfall. And uh, then from outside of a conservation standpoint, you can also find a lot of downfall in who were these small farmers that had these cows and pigs at one time? Are they still there? And if they aren't, what happened to them? And that's really where we're, we're driving this conversation to. So in the case for my family, the story that Luke just told is very familiar. <laughs> my grandfather retired. He Now he's older than, than uh, uh, Luke's dad. So he actually retired when he finished up with his livestock in 1999. He just said, that's it. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm done farming. And he started renting out his acres to um, other grain farmers. And that's how it continues today. And so my farming and my family officially went extinct in 1999. No more farming uh, was taking place. Now, for Luke, it was a time of transition. So we're already down one 
family of farming in this conversation. Uh, for Luke, though, he continues to farm with his dad. But how has that totally changed now? Yeah, for my dad, he was lucky enough. And this goes back to your original question, which I don't know if I answered about, did he ever work off the farm? And the answer was no. But he was lucky in the 1990s that he was able to add two farms and my uncle was able to purchase ground as well. And it got him up to a, an acre number that allowed him to continue farming and, uh, be a a large enough producer where he wasn't shut out Mm. at that time. Now, you could say that is he's the last generation of full-time farmer because I have two brothers. Both of them have off-farm jobs. As Mm. you mentioned, I teach, and that's given me some of that time that's needed to attend to uh, work that is done on the farm. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, the farm was able to make it through four generations before we hit the fifth and no longer is upholding anyone besides my dad who's close to retirement age now. Yeah. Yeah. And and most careers would be past retirement age yes. at 70. Yeah. So so uh, most people are they finish up around 67 because that's when uh you can retire with full social security benefits. Uh but so we need to I guess take a step back here a little bit and explain what happened with all this. Why did all this shift happen? Why did we go from, you know, six generations, the first four having livestock and grain production, but really didn't, as Luke said, that grain production would walk off the farm when you sold that animal. And even I would say, if you go back even a generation before that, didn't walk off the farm in many cases, it just stayed on the farm. True. (laughs) Because you ate what you were you were raising, but, um, obviously the model in America for food production changed pretty early on to where not everybody was a farmer anymore. And so if you weren't growing your own food, you had, there had to be some kind of economy that provided food for those doing other important jobs. Uh, you know, maybe somebody was a, you know, would would work on getting some kind of power grid going for these early communities or you know operated trains worked on you know worked on the railroad as a laborer of some kind whatever jobs existed at that time didn't have time to farm themselves well then yes you know we had still a model that we had farmers providing food for other people in the community but what really happened to where we got to now where it's so extreme where so few of the members of our communities still farm and so many do not will not don't even have an opportunity to if they even wanted to uh what what really do you feel like drove us into the ground on that i think just looking historically at a at farm policy for the nation and reading a little bit more about the intentions behind that grain is great to store and it's great for trade deals, especially if you're producing a lot of it because you can hold on to that. And 
is you don't have to worry about it spoiling like tomatoes mm. or grapes or something like that. Yeah. So in the 1970s, I think it was, is when the ag policy started to trend towards getting farmers to produce something that was advantageous for trade deals. It worked out really well for the nation. And it just... That is so interesting. I didn't realize that. Continued from there. And on a common sense side, how are you going to compete with those trade deals if you were trying to market vegetables and transport that? You can take a, a barge or a rail car or whatever and dump corn in it. Whereas you don't really have that option with other commodities. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's a good point. Very good point. And I mean, that that was started and I don't think farmers are definitely not lazy. There's still that desire. I know a lot of farmers that have kept livestock around and they call it their reason to get up in the morning <laughs> and yeah. a wow. reason to go outside. And obviously there's some nostalgia there as well right. as we talk right. about losing that component of the landscape. But it did simplify things for producers where you were maybe growing four or five crops and raising three or four species of livestock and worrying about providing for your family as well as far as groceries go Yeah. to all you need is a corn planter and it might plant beans as well. <laughs> uh, and then eventually you go from row crop cultivating to uh, spraying with chemical applicators and a combine and that was that yeah yeah the the way we got to where to where we are you know if you want to sum up kind of what like the main theme is here is just a system of solving perceived problems that probably i mean are legitimate problems right uh how do we make this more efficient essentially how do we how do we suffer less crop damage crop loss to all the ways that Luke just mentioned. And nobody nobody was doing this with evil intentions, I don't think. But nobody was also looking at what is the actual cost to to doing to to quote unquote working smarter and not <laughs> and not harder. Which we're gonna get into that when we get a little more philosophical here in a little bit. But it basically got us to where we are today and there's been winners and losers. Um, the winners have, uh, you know, you might be thinking, well, it's probably the farmer that owns 10,000 acres or, you know, or maybe even just a thousand acres. But I don't, I don't think that they can necessarily necessarily be even considered on the winning side of all of this either, because, it has altered um, how, you know, their family has found purpose in their work for generations. Large corporations have been the, large agricultural corporations have been the winners. Um, they have gotten just unimaginably wealthy over uh, a lot of these these changes to agriculture that came from policy stem back to policy changes that took place like Luke mentioned. And so that's really where you have to start asking yourself, okay, 
this isn't all bad for everybody. Who is it not all bad for? And some once you start putting that list together, you start to see somebody who it's really not bad for at all. <laughs> you yeah. start seeing a few people. And the list isn't that long. No, no it's, it's not that it's long. Not. But that, that list <clears throat> has a lot of employees under its belt. So there are, there are a lot of mm-hmm. employees. But back to what you were saying about the the winners not being farmers, I, I was talking to a gentleman who... I'll just say he's pretty high up in a uh, large agricultural company. I said, what's the biggest farm you've ever heard of? He said 25,000 acres. One guy, not a corporation, not a group of people. One guy, and he's got employees. And I was like, that is crazy. crazy. And he's like, yeah, that dude went bankrupt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that guy couldn't make a go of it. 25,000 acres. Yeah. Crazy. That that pretty much sums it up right there. Yeah, I mean, the, the... the amount of money he was having to pay to somebody, somebody else. I don't know who it was, but somebody else was, uh, was apparently obscene. Right. And, and because that, that, I don't know how, how else you could describe that because, because of the, the, for lack of a better term, not that we're talking about a public market here necessarily, but the shareholders in agriculture will say the people that hold a piece of the pie, um, isn't, isn't, uh, the farmer, well, who is it and how much of that pie are they getting and how then do we keep these farmers in business that get such a small piece of the pie despite handling all the product, (laughs) you know, and that's where we get to another policy issue, uh, subsidies, right. Mm -hmm. And that's changed farming too. Oh, definitely. That's, uh, as far as looking at the distribution of subsidies and how that varies from year to year and who ends up with that money, as you're saying, well, first the the producer does, Mm -hmm. but you have all these people that are, that the producer depends on that is our pricing equipment chemicals, seed. I mean, a bag of seed corn costs hundreds of dollars Hmm. and the input costs being as high as they are. Yep. Nitrogen and and lime and things like that. And sure there are farmers making money, but one of the old jokes used to be that farmers spend a million dollars and hope that they make more than a million dollars. Yeah. So and you look at the operating loans and everything else that a producer has just to get the crop in the ground. That's extensive. Mm-hmm. Yep. And and so risky and leads to the unfortunate circumstances like Nick just talked about with with uh, bankruptcy being possible. Uh, what what has happened to most families? The reason guys get to be owning twenty five thousand acres is simply because their neighbors have had to sell. And they've just been able to uh, acquire that land and grow, grow such a large operation, but still fighting the same problems of staying in the, staying in the black and, and, uh, subsidies have been kind of used to offset that a little bit, make that a little bit easier to stay in the black. But then we start wondering, okay, what is that really what is that really a system that we want where 
in order to keep these critically important people, uh, these, these producers, to keep them in business, we have to be handing them tax money in some way, shape, or form. Uh, to maybe it's a tax break, maybe it's uh, uh, you know affecting the rate for the going price for grain. Maybe it's maybe it's a, a check or something. But that that still doesn't end up staying with the farmer, right? No, and it it's actually been shown that it makes the problem worse when the farmer's given money. And I've pondered about this for a couple of years now. Because if you went back to the 1990s and you looked at ground that was selling for, say, five to $700 an acre, now that same ground is selling for more than $7,000 an acre. Mm-hmm. So it's outpaced the rate of inflation, mm-hmm. believe it or not, <laughs> as if that's possible. But <laughs> Right. And I was reading a little bit more as far as like, economists talking about the the landscape of agriculture and how that's changed and as these farmers have been given money an investor can look at that situation if they're going to cash rent to a farmer like they have subsidized crop insurance that's a great deal for me i have cash i need somewhere to put it Mm -hmm. they're not attached to agriculture whatsoever they maybe were five generations ago so they can dump cash and in investment and celebrate some of the economics that come along with that type of investment. Cash run it to a farmer, be guaranteed payment, mm-hmm. especially with a lot of those insurance situations and the guarantee that those subsidies will be there. And even though the subsidy is being given to the producer, it ends up costing the producer more money to do business. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And and you end up now in this priced out situation where if, if say somebody like me who farming has been out of the family now for uh, 25 plus years, right now, almost 25 years mm-hmm. um, uh, to be able to buy my way in, I would have to have, either a uh background in professional athletics or uh definitely or, <laughs> or uh you know come up with some other major wealth to be able to buy the land and then of course the equipment costs that have just just uh gone astronomical compared to what it you know a tractor even with inflation considered what it would have costed in you know 1951 or something like that compared to 2021 is is so unbelievably different that you you're priced out you know and and uh so again you're we've identified a losing situation right as a result of of all of this and if you want to stay in though you got to keep playing the game mm mm-hmm. mhm well, and it is a mainstream complaint of the age that a farmer is. And then you hear some of the the comments that follow that, like, oh, nobody wants to work anymore, or that oh, they're just generations have changed. <laughs> right, yeah. If we could only find someone that <clears throat> wanted to farm, these guys in their 60s and 70s or families could could hand this ground down to someone. 
But as you're saying, if you showed up at an auction, they would laugh you out of there. Right. Because first of all, you're up against people with cash, mm-hmm. investors just looking yep. for somewhere to put that. And you're up against a lot of your own tax dollars yeah. and somebody that's been subsidized if a producer is lucky enough to purchase a farm. And then there's you. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way to to break down that well, that competition. I I mean, just you're going up against Bill Gates on most, you know, on on most. Definitely, on most. I, I think he owns over two hundred fifty thousand acres, which is wild. Yeah, number one landowner in the in the country now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know there was a myth that he owned most of the farmland, which obviously is not true. You know, he owns right, less yeah. than one percent of it, but still, it's. I think he's considered the largest farmland owner in the united states yeah. no yeah. He, he owns yeah. more than anyone okay. else yeah um which is pretty crazy but you know that or i mean even, Bill even Gates, for even foreign investors have capitalized on the oh yeah china too. but the the nice thing about that one is that like eminent domain i don't know if i don't I, I feel like the u.s would just be like well cool we're just gonna pay for it back here's your money now get out of here <laughs> you know uh <laughs> i mean well actually i think that Iowa Supreme Court just struck down an eminent domain deal for an airport near Pella. Yeah. Which yeah. was okay. a huge deal. You saw big old signs yeah. all over the place. Yeah, eminent domain is a is a ugly thing that um, you know, if your family owns land and has for a long time, do some asking around for with your older uh, relatives, if you're near like any kind of population, sizable population center, there's probably a good chance. That, yeah. Or that, an interstate uh, or something. Right. Yeah. Your ground is shifted around a little bit. There's with, this guy in Pella. I don't know who he is, so I'm not like calling him out. I, I have no idea who he is, but he is surrounded. At, I mean, there's like 80 acres surrounded by houses. Oh. And so apparently this dude's like, I ain't getting <laughs> on his land. Well, good or, for that guy. Keep holding out, man. Or, or he saw the, the price go 8,000, 10,000. <laughs> See how high should go. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and so like farm ground in Iowa recently has sold for 22, 23, mm-hmm. $25,000 an acre. And he's near one of the considered the best cities to live in in Iowa. Like he's right there with Pella. Um, so I can't imagine. I bet you know it's probably worth forty thousand. Yeah, sell it by the square foot. Well, oh. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's that's <laughs> a, honestly a lot of the. That, that's what happens. Yeah, like that. for residential development or commercial development. I mean, now you're talking. You know, like if you wanted to go buy a half acre of ground in in one of those mm-hmm. cul-de-sac neighborhoods or you know subdivisions, you know a lot of times the starting price for a half acre or, or an acre thirty two in Knoxville. Or, yeah, or or even higher i see stuff you know we got got an acre ready for development fifty thousand dollars oh yeah you know? oh yeah and you start thinking of that in terms of <laughs> paying fifty thousand an acre you know that's just outrageous but my wife and i we, we flip houses in knoxville and this house we bought recently is on a really desirable corner and dude this was the worst house you've ever seen <laughs> in your life it was just in rough shape and like the floor like the the beams that were supposed to hold up the floor the support was just like tree bark stacked on top so oh, when we wow. were ripping up the floor we were like what <laughs> so we're ripping into this thing and we had and we bought it for twenty five thousand dollars and we had the <laughs> real thought for a while like 
We could just rip it down. <laughs> have a very desirable. It sounds like lot. you should have sold it to a historical society. Yeah. <laughs> Twenty-five thousand dollars. We just got this acre for a good deal. <laughs> yeah. It's our farming corn yeah. out of this acre yeah. in Milltown. Uh, uh, All right, sorry. No, no, it's a good, it's a good. Uh, what do you call that? A digression there, but but uh, let's let's shift gears here a little bit. So we we've established the idea. Ag has changed. It's a it's a totally different game. The way money is is where farms have become essentially instead of just for for sustenance to for profit mm-hmm. is is the the model there. Um, uh, so in other words, now the farmer goes to the grocery store too. Uh, the, the that has changed how we view things in society like what is important to us change it what does the job scape look like for people now um if we don't have all these people whose grandfathers and great-grandfathers and grandmothers were you know farmers they aren't around anymore and it wasn't a one-for-one exchange where do you know as the generations progressed where do all these people work now all of that you come up with some philosophical things that need to be addressed, I think. But, but before we get there, one of the things that Luke and I like to joke about whenever we see these, you know, somebody will post a meme on social media or whatever. I remember uh, one that is often circulated. I think Luke tagged me in this a year ago or so. It was The story went something like this. Guy for... Uh, I won't say who for uh, large farming uh, information uh, entity, we'll say media source um, had posted about how he was at a ag convention and uh, he was advertising their summer internships for students like college students to come and and uh, write for his publication so they could get some experience as a as a published writer and he had this high school age girl show up and uh she's like oh i see you have an internship that i might be interested in he's like well what's your uh resume she's like oh i'm sorry i don't have much of a resume i just grew up on a farm and then he goes into this long monologue (laughs) Uh, what kinds of things was he saying in his monologue luke do you remember it was like the mayberry version of growing up on a farm every (laughs) 1940s stereotype that you could think yes. of the milk and cows and feeding chickens and at 4 butchering hogs and staying up all night feeding a calf and making sure it was all right and walking to school two miles to a one-room schoolhouse yep yeah it, it was all embedded in there but in instead of in the time context of this happening in 1941 this was uh, happening in like 2021 and and the reason we're calling that out is because I believe, because when you read the comments on it, now I know, I know, social media comments, that's where you go to find the dumbest things in society. But uh, it also shows how many people think the dumbest things in society when there's, you know, like 20,000 comments on there or something ridiculous like that, it, where people believe that that's still what is going on on the majority of farms for people. But that's just not true anymore. That, that that model has not existed for so long. It's so out of date that um, it, 
farmers don't have those they don't to be honest with you they don't have those opportunities anymore because they as luke said they weren't profitable enough to justify doing it and uh instead you know there and certainly there are families that have chickens and and we, we we talked luke would be one of those families uh the people that are you know people that have some livestock that they care for and so we don't want to diminish that but the idea that this guy was was saying that this is going on on all farms is Basic, far from the truth. Quoting Paul Harvey's speech, exactly, yeah, exactly, no idea what exactly, exactly. And so there's this there's this idea of tradition that is perpetuated by organizations such as his because I feel that it keep and Luke would agree with me on this. It keeps everyone comfortably numb. Yes, <laughs> which is a great song, by the way. Uh, <laughs> it keeps everybody comfortably numb. Um, to the problems that exist and and it keeps them blind and it keeps these organizations getting richer and richer and richer. So you've talked about how, what the system is. I, I, I don't think you, unless I'm totally missing it. What, what's the problem with how it exists? Why, why sure. is grow? I mean, if grain stores for a while and it's great for marketing and if people are making money, why, where's this issue? Well, um, according to some people, there may not be a problem. <laughs> Some, yeah. most, maybe yeah, most. And <laughs> yeah. as he's, I, I don't know what the level of, of knowledge of a typical person is as far as agriculture goes and what that landscape yeah, looks it's, like. It's right impossible now. to quantify that. Yeah. Um, and I remember back in 2020, which I know people get tired about hearing about COVID but that was a great snapshot into some problems that exist mm-hmm. with what agriculture exists. The reason it exists is to eat. Yep. And all of a sudden you're in the Midwest and you're hearing about food shortages and you think, well, how did we get here? <laughs> yeah. And they say the average grocery travels 1500 miles before it's consumed Hmm. So further that 2020 date along now into the Ukraine-Russia conflict and what's happened with fuel. Yeah. And the price tripled, doubled, whatever. And we have one more snapshot into, oh, well, what's happening with our transportation right now? Is it really good for a head of lettuce to travel 1500 miles before it's consumed. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't we uh, grow that right here? And yeah, but could you grow it cheaper somewhere else? (laughs) Well, and that's, it's amazing to me that we do choose that and we, we continue to choose specialized operations over geographical common sense over and over again. Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at how much corn we grow here. And you think, okay, well, what eats corn? Well, cows do. And then you look at the number of cattle that are actually sourced from here by the time beef is consumed. And it's coming from Colorado or states away. Yeah. Even though we have what it takes here to finish those out. Yeah, but you can't use this land for cattle, brother. This land's the best corn growing (laughs) land there ever was. Right. And that's and that's and that's exactly the the attitude that the industry has adopted, you know, and 
And again, going back to what I said earlier, it was solving problems. Well, you know, we could use this ground. This ground sure sure would be a shame to use any of this ground for anything but growing corn. Sure would be a shame to not just haul in a bunch of uh, uh, bales to feed these cows on, you know, in essentially desert ground or or rocky terrain and uh, or or drive in feed and, and feed them there so that we, you know, don't waste uh, precious corn growing ground in Iowa for, you know, finishing cows or, or whatever. But, uh, the reason it's, it's not good is because we're going to a point where, uh, we lost so much self-sufficiency like Luke talked about. We've lost all this independence of, of, from families to communities to entire, you know, an entire country. When you look at a major crisis, like he identified in 2020, and then uh, the other part of it is, from a conservation standpoint, if only if we're only going to have, um, you know, a very very small percentage of our population owning all and operating on all this farm ground, then we have a very small percentage of the population making decisions about a majority of our surface area that contains all the wildlife that contains. Uh, all the natural carbon stores that contains access to uh, uh, things we may need for uh, for the next big crisis that contains the ability to to grow food um, you know for the huge majority of the population water cleanliness water mm-hmm. quality air quality and and all those things are so dependent on such a few number of people that that's a really fragile system if those few number of people decide to not be very careful with with uh all of those resources and that to me is the scariest problem in all of it now thankfully i think that the average person that you come across the average landowner is a pretty reasonable person and and they do uh care somewhat for at least somewhat some care a lot uh, for taking care of it. But, um, as that becomes less and less personal and you have, you know, someone, an IT person, uh, who's the number one landowner, someone who hasn't even been probably physically to much of the ground that they own, then it gets real easy to not care about that stuff anymore. You know what I mean? And it gets things like, like uh, conserving ground and things like that start to become real inconvenient, and uh, yeah, uh, that's where that's where we run the risk. I think to answer your question, Nick. So we're 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 having a uh, we're running a risk by the monopolizing of power mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. by a lack of conservation. Um, so it's not that people are making money; that's not the issue. It's what they're trading in order to make the money. So people are trading profits for air quality, water quality, um, healthy, uh, healthier economies where the money's flowing in and out and it's shared mm-hmm. in more hands. And, uh, and I don't mean like socialistic, but I mean like shared it where it's, the money's flowing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course, the big one that we love, conservation, which mm-hmm. really en- encapsulates a lot of things. And, and uh, I, I mean, it's right. It, we talk about Iowa a lot. I mean, we're in Illinois right now, but but never in all of mankind has this, I think, uh, may, maybe in like 
maybe the Mongols or um, Genghis Khan made it happen, but like has two species just been over millions of, you know, millions and millions of acres. Yeah. Wild, (laughs) wild to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's an interesting way of putting it (laughs) for sure. The, you know, the the other part of this too is what is all of this propped up on? If we're going to have this so specialized and so parsed out that the Midwest is only good for growing grain, uh, you know, the West, the West coast is only good for growing, uh, grapes and tomatoes and, uh, um, you know, places like, uh, 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 the South are only good for growing citrus. And, and some of that is, is true, right? Some of those things are limited. Like you can only grow cranberries in a cranberry bog. You know, you can only, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense to grow citrus down in, in a place where you have weather that is, you know, above freezing for the vast majority of, of the year. But there's also ways to, to make some of those, those commodities, you know, grow, side by side with what is grows really easily there. So instead of just saying, you know, well, you can't really have, uh, you know, tomatoes grow really well in California. Well, they can also grow well in Iowa too. We might not be able to produce as many as we do. We could in, in there, but we also cut out a lot of fossil fuel use to get them from there to here. And, uh, you know, find common sense ways to grow what we can Yes, we're still going to have to ship some stuff in because, again, cranberries grow in a cranberry bog. They don't grow in a yeah. they don't grow in you know rolling acres of of dry farm ground in in, in you know mall soil soils in in Iowa. But uh, my my point there is we need to look at too from an air quality standpoint. Okay, it's not just you know, what, what, what is the problem? Well, we don't have as many trees pulling carbon, uh, back out of the atmosphere. We don't have as much prairie grass doing that. We have ground that's, you know, largely, uh, total uncovered until, you know, June when corn starts to come up. Um, you know, if we, if those are grass acres that we're talking to April, we already have a pretty good stand of, of photosynthesizing plants going there and cover crops are helping with some of that now too, which is good. Um, but we also have the other side of it that not only are we not pulling in as much carbon, uh, by having those acres covered in, in, uh, plants, but we're spending, expending so much carbon into the atmosphere, emitting it by burning, uh, fossil fuels to make all of this system work. And, uh, Luke, you've kind of, talked a lot about how, uh, if, if our, uh, you know, ancestors saw how much energy we put into just getting to work every day or (laughs) getting that, that lettuce to go 1500 miles, they'd, they'd think we were crazy, right? Yeah. Just imagine if you went back even 100 years, let alone a thousand years and you said, well, before you consume something, it's going to have to travel over a thousand miles. Right. Something that you could, and not just that, something you could grow on your ground. Yes. And you would know more about this from the science perspective, but I've often thought about what if we had to create the energy as we used it 
mm-hmm. rather than pumping it out of the ground. How many days of energy do we use per day right now? Yeah, right. That's true. So that took how many years to create the, to the fossil store, fuel? Store that fossil fuel in the in the earth, in the crust. Yeah. And for that to be, to go into a usable energy source. And now it's just like, oh, every minute. <laughs> yeah. How much is getting burned up? We pump up. So essentially what Luke's, Luke's saying is, you know, it took, you know, maybe several thousand years for that oil reserve to build up and we're pumping that oil back out in a matter of hours or days or weeks you know so we're exchanging a very long-term thing for a very short-term thing and then Um, the ratio is 10 to 1 oh wow (laughs) so So there you go there's your number 10 calories of energy is used for every one calorie of energy that we consume through food wow that's crazy what that's crazy. That makes us like the least efficient beings in the world, <laughs> even though we, and I feel like that's what a lot from an economic standpoint, if you said, all right, man, it is illegal to have a farm over 80 acres, right? All of a sudden, all these people have parcels and they're on farms and cows and stuff like that. What do you lose? You lose quote unquote economic efficiency, right? When you mm-hmm. have one person farming a thousand acres, you get a lot more corn. Um, but, um, uh, and so, in turn, I get to have an iPhone. Why? Because Steve Jobs didn't have to milk a cow every morning because someone else did it so efficiently that now he could spend his time doing something else, right? So it's a it's a chain right, reaction. Yeah. So now I get an iPhone, um, but now all of a sudden everyone has to go back to 80 acres. You lose out that efficiency. So my brain said, if my brain said we need to find a balance of efficiency and conservation and you're telling me we don't even have efficiency we suck at that <laughs> apparently well yeah the efficiency only exists if you have an infinite energy source oh yeah which we've pretty much treated fossil fuels as yeah, right and then we think oh well lithium's going to replace that until you do any research on the supply of that i've heard that lithium's actually really common it's just large stores of it um trying to think if i should put the i will not throw this person <coughs> under the bus because i know him personally but they <laughs> are very educated and got and, and uh and uh um uh, mechanic mechanical physics or something and uh and he said that lithium's basically everywhere but we haven't made the technology to sift it out so we have to go to where there are large deposits of it well and even still you got to have you have to have the the land to mine for that and mining operations what are those going to depend on an energy source you know what i mean just a, a you're you're still and that's been the biggest problem so far it, uh with with um switching to these alternative energy sources which i think i'm i'm all for doing research into that and trying to trying to find other ways but at the end of the day the best solution isn't just well let's let's put let's take all of our eggs out of this one basket and now put them all into this basket instead it's like a better solution probably is just let's try and use less, you know, yeah. and try and consume less, try and try and uh, cut back on using so much. And that is, that applies to far more than just uh, the, yeah, the ag industry, psyche, human right? psyche thing, but the ag industry uses a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, um, you know, from just maintaining fields and, and, and crops to then shipping that crop all over the place. Like, like Luke mentioned, we're just very dependent on that. And, 
in some ways, our structure is built to a point now, our structure, meaning our, our, the way our whole society is set up, is, is set up in a, in a way so that it's like almost too far to go back, right? We have people, you know, during the Dust Bowl, uh, what was a real problem was people were ending up in places where people should not live, you know, there was nothing there to keep them alive. In fact, it was a major, like a tragic thing. There were people that would literally scam uh, uh, vulnerable people by by printing out, like drawing up these big ads. They'd be like, come to such and such a city down in uh, southwestern plains. Well, that's all like, you know, sagebrush, you know, very poor soil, uh, uh, part of the country just nothing there desolate basically not desert but not far from desert and uh and not a ton of rain not real reliable rain you know year after year after year um and so people would say wow look at this i can go get free or cheap land you know down in this area and i can start a farm let's go family you know let's put all of our life savings into this trip and we're gonna go make a go of it and then they get there and be like where is everybody (laughs) Where is everything that keeps us alive? And then, you you know, you have these terrible stories of people are now starving in the middle of nowhere looking for, but how have we overcome that? Well, there's people still living in those places, right? We, we've basically occupied every square inch of the lower 48 in some way, shape, or form. Fossil fuel has made that possible because if you can't grow groceries somewhere, you can always ship them in, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And that is a very, very vulnerable system. And so, uh, but something that this industrial ag model has supported, right? If you can't grow carrots here, don't worry. We know where you, where we can grow carrots. All you got to do is pay for the fuel to get them here and build a grocery store with some coolers in it to keep them fresh long enough for everyone to get their share of carrots. And it, it just really doesn't make any sense when you pull that out of it. Yeah. Also, if we really want to get kind of crazy here, What's interesting is what do we what do we see all the time in ads on TV, ads on social media, some kind of like getting healthier, you know, uh, side of things, right? Uh, like, hey, try this new fad diet to uh, make yourself healthier, physically healthier. And what's weird here is we're living way longer now than, as far as we know, uh, than. Pretty much, you know, I don't know. Since Adam and Eve. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Like, yeah, I mean, for a long time, we have, like, the best life expectancy now. However, we have people that are very unhealthy living these long lives because we've made such good friends with chemistry to keep us alive, right? All kinds of pills that can take away harmful health conditions that, um, that keep us alive or, you know, surgeries that can fix problems or treat problems. We should say not really fix problems, but treat problems for us. But we still have people desiring to, to be physically healthier. So what do they do? They got to go work out, right? They got to, the calories have become so easy to obtain and so hard to get rid of (laughs) that we have people that are just, you know, myself included that store too many of them on their bodies, right? Because we've taken away the need to actually do a lot of this work on an individual basis, right? The the need to, to you ever seen the show alone? Yes. Yeah. Neither of you guys. Oh, it's so good. They take like, 
it's a case study in this exactly. Yeah. No, no, really. It, they take like 10 people who are already very well trained in, in survival okay. uh, things, and they separate them, each person. They get to pick like 10 items. So obviously everyone picks a flint. I think basically everyone picks like a knife. And then like some people pick axes or like wire. You know, everyone picks a tarp, I think. And then uh, they're like dropped off in the middle of the con- uh, some forest in Canada near a lake. And they're like, hey, here's a button. Last person to press it for us to come get you wins. Right. But they're all by themselves. Mm-hmm. And they have like they 60 do all their own filming and everything that they have to like record themselves doing everything. And um, but one thing they talk about, like when, when you get through the first week, everyone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then by the end of week two, people are like, yo, I'm hungry (laughs) and then like you see someone catch a fish about every episode a few people catch a fish and like the glee on their face and you just see them like shouting for joy and the dopamine rush they must feel (sighs) from getting like catching their own food because i mean their body's rewarding them because they needed that Mm -hmm. and when we had pizza right before this you know what dopamine i rush i felt none you know i didn't do a dang thing i sat on the couch and i got up and i sat at the table and i ate way too much pizza it was terrible (laughs) (laughs) um we haven't like produced our own food. We haven't had to work for it at all. Um, our bodies are very soft as a species. I mean, we're like, we're like what? Two steps from me and the people in Wally. Yeah, you know right, what I mean? Right. <laughs> well, it's funny you bring that up because you talk about efficiency and my wife and I have a garden and then we get some produce from near, from neighbors as well. But if you can your own green beans, it's amazing you will never leave one of them on a plate. Yeah, that's true. Whereas when you purchase a can for 70 cents or whatever at the mm. grocery store, you shrug your shoulders because that's one of thousands, right. or millions, whatever. Yeah. Whereas when you've actually processed all that, same yep. goes with deer hunting. Yep. You don't want to see an ounce of that meat go to waste. Yep. Whereas you bring home, home produce from the grocery store and how much of it gets thrown out. Yep. Yep, that's that's so true. There's there's a connection to when you were you were involved in its production. There's that's those are great points for mm-hmm. both of you there. Yeah. So what's interesting here is I wish I if this was a video podcast, I'd pull up right now for you my favorite diagram from when I was teaching science. It's called the energy uh, pyramid. Uh, so think of a triangle. You have four levels in this triangle, starting at the base, working up to the top. And uh, that triangle establishes for us what are all of the uh, organisms in an, in an ecosystem. I, and I shouldn't say all, because you also have your decomposers that kind of don't really fit in there. But, but almost all of the organisms that make up an ecosystem fit somewhere on that energy pyramid. And... On the sides of that pyramid are two arrows. So outside of the pyramid, going from the base of that pyramid up to the top. One is labeled energy or energy available, and one is labeled uh, population size. And so as you go up from the base level, which would be the producers, all the things that go through photosynthesis, use sunlight, convert it to usable chemical energy for all other living things in the ecosystem for the most part. 99.9%. Then at the next level, you have all those things that eat only plants. 
That would be your primary consumers. They're consuming other organisms to gain energy from there. You go to secondary consumers, it's going to be small predators. And then up at the top are going to be your your tertiary uh, consumers, or some people call them like apex, consumer apex predator, whatever. You know, those are going to be like your grizzly bears, right? And so as you go at that base level, you have, from a biomass standpoint, a much greater population of producers and, and then you do primary consumers and more primary consumers than you do secondary consumers, more secondary consumers than you do tertiary consumers. But when you look at humans, everyone says, well, humans would be at the top, right? We, you know, we're, we're tertiary consumers. At one time, yes. At one time, yes, we, we would have fit there. But our population doesn't go down, Right. Our population, what happens when you get to the top of the energy pyramid if you put humans on there is we balloon back out into an up, upside-down pyramid, right? We, our population, 8 billion of us, right? That is so much. Think of how if you took all of the grizzly bears on the planet, it would be <laughs> – I don't know if you'd hit more than you know, a couple, maybe 100,000, something like that. We're at 8 billion, and, and we are so much more numerous – than any other tertiary consumer. So I would argue we no longer belong on the energy pyramid. Uh, We have totally manipulated the amount of energy that we can have to grow our population that would have naturally limited our population. Mm -hmm. The reason there's not a ton of uh, 8 billion grizzly bears is because it's really hard for a grizzly bear to get enough calories to survive and reproduce. He's got to like tackle a moose with his teeth and 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 kill that thing and not get it taken away by the wolves trying to do the same thing right he's got to fight and spend all those calories in that process of doing so we as humans we have the industrial ag model that can bring an unlimited amount of calories to our plate and we can eat far more we can gorge ourselves on such a regular basis so easily that having enough energy to reproduce isn't even a question for most people on this planet anymore. And I know that's not all. Some places, starvation is still a very real problem. But but in a lot of places, especially here in America, it is not near what it was at one time, right? And And so what is the cost of that then? If we have a situation where we are not spending near that energy on our own, Instead, we're using it from fossil fuels. What is the cost of doing so? Well, it's all of these conservation problems we identified. And mainly, it's a, an enormous amount of carbon dioxide that is released from the burning of fossil fuels that prop up such a model. And that carbon dioxide was never supposed to be in that quantity in our atmosphere. And that affects our climate from a greenhouse effect standpoint. Now, this is hard to <laughs> explain all this without having visuals and everything else. Um, but it all goes back to what, you know, let's go back to the example of Fritch's uh, relatives cutting down fence posts. That took a lot of energy to go and cut fence posts and stick them in the ground to keep your cows in, <laughs> you know. And Definitely. Keep, it took a lot of energy to go and hand pick corn off of the stalks and put them in a basket and then hand shuck it with a little glove with a metal <laughs> yes. a metal uh, strip in the glove and you know 
you know, haul that around, keep the lives, the horses around that pulled the carts and the mules and everything else. That took so much human effort that those people weren't worried about being overweight. <laughs> they weren't worried about a new fad diet to burn enough yeah. calories. To, and there weren't so many calories that it, that it caused us to have a situation where, uh, you know, we're, producing so many different forms of waste, mainly carbon dioxide yeah. in such quantities that were greatly negatively impacting well, our planet. You start approaching something crazy, um, psychological, philosophical, maybe even physiological. So they didn't, they had to spend more energy to get less. So they didn't have as much, right? Mm -hmm. they, they didn't have as much. They had less. Yeah. You should ideally be, net neutral at the yeah. end of every Breaking day. Even. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You should, you should, you should be, you should be, I spent 2000 calories today. I ate 2000 calories today. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, that, that yeah. would be healthy. But, but there is a mindset of more is better. Mm -hmm. Not really sure why, but I think a lots of people. And by that, I mean, literally billions if not everybody has to fight or maybe they don't fight this this idea that a little more that'll bring that'll bring me some satisfaction right because we as a human species we're trying to find this satisfaction we're trying to yeah. find this not even dopamine we're trying to find like rest we're trying to find peace we're trying to yep. find this. comfort we're trying yeah. to find comfort yeah we're trying to find comfort which which even from not a psychological level if you think of more physiological uh, comfort meant you 10,000 years ago meant you probably weren't going to die today. Yeah. If you were, if you were able to be comfortable, you weren't going to die because what was uncomfortable, uh, you know, cancer, you didn't know about in your body. That was yeah. uncomfortable. What was uncomfortable? A saber tooth tiger gnawing on your arm. That's uncomfortable. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But if you're yeah. comfortable, you're probably not going to die. So we're after this comfort. We're after this more, we're after being satisfied. And, um, and I, some people figured out, some people, I, what, what did Jim Carrey say? Jim Carrey said, I, I hope that everyone gets their, uh, accomplishes all of their dreams to realize that that will not make you happy, <laughs> you know? And, <laughs> that's, yeah. a, that's a good point. And so, but like, I hope they get every acre that they're hoping to get. And I hope that they get all the money in the bank account that they want and, and all the attention from all the people that they want. And then, and then maybe they'll realize that that's, it's not going to bring them happiness. Um, yeah. so we are we are talking about a systemic issue um but which is good but you can never fully make rules and fully make systems to box in the like essence or soul of a man for cuz if 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 a man has got darkness in him it's going to seep out if he's mm -hmm. going to manipulate people he's going to do it mm -hmm. you know there's no i think some governments are better at controlling it than others um, but, and then if a person has good in them, it's going to show they're going to, um, they're going to express it. So we need to talk about systems. It's really important. And we have, you know, there are huge flaws and there's huge benefits. I heard a pastor talk the other day that, um, he said, uh, a capitalistic, uh, constitutional Republic is a horrible, horrible form of government and economy. Right. And that's what we have. He's like, but it's also the best the world's ever come up with so far. So we'll just <laughs> we'll stick with it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, yeah, that's, that's some are better than others. They all got their flaws. But uh, uh, 
at the end of the day, we, we got to ask ourselves, where, where am I getting my satisfaction? Cause, uh, because if we're getting it from stuff and we're getting it from more, we can yell at the system all we want, but we're, we're still going to end up feeding into it, even if we're not realizing it. Yeah. And I, and I think it's important too, that this is where Fritch and I as fault finders, I guess you could call us, where we, we can err is we can't hope for this to return to a 1941 model that we were talking about earlier, where people found so much meaning from doing, doing the simple things of life and, and, you know, putting in a good hard day's worth of work and, uh, you know, putting more on the human calorie and less on the, you know, the gallon of, of, of petroleum. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that would be great if we could get back to that model. I think we'd be so much healthier in a lot of ways, but what's done is done, right? We've entered this arms race of sorts throughout the world of who's the richest, biggest, baddest. And so once you're in that game, you kind of have to, stay with it. But I think we can make some serious changes to get closer to 1941 model of agriculture that would that would help with a lot of this. And I think it all it goes to what Nick is saying and that's really the purpose of this podcast, right? Is to try and develop help people develop a care in the world for, you know, being willing to maybe give up on a few of those comforts or less of them, right? Uh, maybe be willing to keep your house set at at uh you know seventy five instead of seventy three in the summer. You, you know? don't need the whole hey. box of Oreos. You can yeah. just eat one sleeve. <laughs> right. right, right. You know, or yeah, that's cut me. less in you know in consumption in general. Right. Maybe maybe that's the best way to to look at the way forward. But also, as far as you know, land use, I think it's really important that we have more small farms again and more young farmers so that that we can, you know, get back to what Fritch's family was, which, you know, a farm that was able to fully support individuals so that they didn't have to work off the farm and they can they can work on that ground that they value. Because Fritch cares a lot about not just his production acres, but his CRP acres as well. He cares a lot about the stand of timber that doesn't make him a dime. <laughs> he cares a lot about the animals that live there because that's his, that's his ground mm, that's, that's that has good. his blood, sweat and tears soaked into it. He's connected and, to it. Right. He's connected to it. Exactly. I, I, and, 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 and what I, what I think can happen from this is we, the, the, so here's where we offer some solutions. So we already have all this federal money, that's being given to farmers. I don't think Fritch and I would ever say that that money, no, put an absolute stop to that right now. I think all we want is it to be used more meaningfully. Give it to farmers for more CRP acres. Keep them in business, but don't grow more ethanol that we aren't even necessarily entirely using or you know, maybe pay them to allow that stand of trees to still be there instead of having to till, you know, doze those trees so they can grow more ethanol there. Um, come up with, you know, make tie some of that money to new farmer programs, you know, mm-hmm. uh, what do you think, Luke, what would be some things that you would throw in there? Yeah, I think those are very valuable suggestions. Um, it's tough 
as Nick was saying, as far as when you're creating a, your name is Nick, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I thought it was late for a moment. It's getting late. I for sure am keeping that yeah. in the podcast. It's getting late. This is, but we might have to do this into a two part podcast. <laughs> My goodness. It's almost nine o'clock, gentlemen. <laughs> so as Nick was talking about systems and I think it's tough to make, especially from the federal government standpoint, those all these one size fits all approaches. Yeah. And then we end up with what we've ended up with now because yep. you get main players in there and they figure out the game and it took a while for some of them, but once they do, as you've said, there's no going back. Yep. So how do you actually go back and say, well, these are some unintended consequences of the policy that we've made. Mm-hmm. And then we can remediate this by we have these federal dollars, as you're saying, available already. Yep. And like, not that we need to have a referendum on ethanol right now. And it's tough to have one. If you research that there's studies that have shown that it's a, it's negative as far as net energy goes. And there's other Mm. studies of people that have wanted to show that it's positive and it ends up being positive. (laughs) Well, then there's also the issues of with carbon yep. and the quality of grain that comes along with the push for ethanol. But maybe land use is something that's worth looking at. And rather rather than trying to find a place for that grain, like you're saying, having some type of sustainable conservation that those dollars could be used towards. Yeah. sounds valuable and you talk about energy and i'm a little biased because we heat with wood yeah but i think about how much energy our timbers supply and luckily there's a lot of trees out there as you've seen yeah and we can keep that going but it takes away our dependence besides running the chainsaw and any other equipment that we happen to use but we do end up ahead on that model yeah. when it comes to heating the house and whatever other structures you might have with that. Yep. So there's that real form of energy there. It's not a subsidy or a mandate that's going into farmer do this and next year it's gone and you yeah. start over again. Yep. So you can, you have that energy source standing there, which was a part of a lot of early farms as they'd go in and they plant trees. Yeah. Yeah, that was their fuel source. Was what was that wood? Yeah, that's a great Are, point. We I think we've talked about this on the podcast. We've definitely talked about it, whether it was on the podcast or not. But a solution I see comes from a problem we didn't even get to very much tonight. But um, people are living longer, like you said. Mm-hmm. So farmers are farming till they're eighty. Totally fine. Like not trying to take things away from them, uh, but their kids are. 55, mm-hmm. 52, mm-hmm. 50, 48, maybe yeah. they're 25 years into their career. Yeah. They didn't start farm unless, unless their dad had a big old fat farm. Yep. They didn't start farming with their dad, which means now you're looking at the grandkids taking over, but the grandkids dad wasn't in the farm. So why would he, right. yeah, why, they, so, so they don't, yeah, have, so, they don't have the knowledge base to get it. Yeah. Too far removed yep. for succession. Yep. And this is not always the case, but there's a big case where these, older um mostly gentlemen farmers are 
pretty controlling over how the ground's going to be used. You know what I mean? They don't mm-hmm. want it. They don't want to let someone else do it. Which um, <coughs> one of the crazy things, like they had to make tons of mistakes to get where they were at, but they won't let someone else make those mis- same mistakes on their on their farm. And I, I don't know if it's greed. I don't know if it's fear. But I see it over and over again. I mean, there was a there. I know of a mega farmer um and he passed away and i mean he was so big that uh he was so big that i think he had five sons and they all worked full-time for the farm okay right plus some grandkids working full-time plus the in-law daughters that or daughter-in-laws are working full-time for the farm so you, you got a big operation um and uh and I had heard that this gentleman basically told all the kids, Hey, this is how much you're allowed to have for groceries every week. Gr- grown men, 50 year old men. He was telling them. And then, and then he passed away. And I, I chatted with two of the sons who, who were quite a bit older than me. And I was just saying like, Hey, sorry. Like your dad was kind of a pillar, you know, around where he's at. And I'm sorry about that. And, and both their response was, yeah, it's easier these days now. <laughs> yeah. Like, and so there's this. Mm. So it's it's not that's not always the case. It's not always they're very controlling, but it's like that was their lifeline. They weren't really planning on yeah. you know, living till 85 and still farming, but that's how it ended up happening and then they've got no one to pass it down to. So the kids or grandkids inherit it. What do we do with it? We either rent it to a big farmer or Man, we could make eight million dollars selling this off. Yeah, well, have it. Yeah. And that's what's tough and Kent and I have talked about that before is that it would be tough to find a family that is willing, a group of siblings, say, that is willing to let one or two siblings that want to operate a farm Mm -hmm. operate it and walk away from the potential amount of money, as you're saying, that would be there. It's hard. Yeah, it's it's like we all have to accept the reality that we got to be willing to be uncomfortable and make make the the hard decision you know that doesn't make sense financially all of the time and financially we mean green paper money financial uh we talked to chase burns recently and we talked about how the value can be measured in different ways and that is the negative side of a capital you know capitalistic system where so much emphasis is is placed on money it does you know the phrase money makes the world go around it's true you know we can't get away from that but we going back to this word of conservation how can we how can we look at using less and needing less and demanding less in most categories of life um, or even in just some of them and you know we don't have to insist on being a millionaire. We don't have to insist on even, you know, being so wealthy that we can pay for every bill instantly as it comes to us, you know, demanding that level. And I know that's tough. That's a really tough ask of people. But if we're going to preserve the things that we all probably value to some extent outside of money, those are the kinds of sacrifices we're all going to have to be willing to make. You know, Mm. we're going to have to sacrifice comforts. We're going to have to sacrifice recreation. We're going to have to sacrifice, um, 
uh, free time, you know, uh, you know, just brain drain time. You know, we're going to have to sacrifice having new everything all the time. And, and we're going to have to make those cuts in certain areas if we're ever going to slow down the snowball, you know, of, mm-hmm. of, of what it is. And, and so it, you know, sometimes that means like Nick said, it's, it's a hard sell to not take your $8 million by just selling out and saying, you know what, our family's going to hang on to this. We're going to try and figure this out and it's going to cost money. You know what? I don't really want to learn how to farm, but my brother does. And all three of us just inherited this, you know, ground from, you know, our parents, uh, when they passed away, uh, he wants to try and figure it out maybe I'll just be content to instead get a share off of the profit of the land or the cash rent value from him renting from me, as opposed to my upfront, you know, million dollars for, for selling out to try and keep a small farm around, you know, or even like, uh, our, our founder, Carol talked about setting up programs that encourage farmers that are, you know, experienced and, and older, that can financially protect them to lease acres to new guys that want to get into farming that maybe not even are, are related to them. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, and the other part of it is if we allow farming to have more meat on the bone for farmers, instead of this super drawn out process of having lettuce going 1500 miles away and paying 15 middlemen in, in the process of doing so and we keep more of those dollars at home the farmers can make more money and retire when they're 62 or 67 and then their kids can get into it or their grandkids can learn from them and get into it you know and have some of that attrition that that would be great to see that once did exist um, not that long ago either and uh, bring some of that back and fix some of these problems. Well, and I think you were alluding to something that is definitely missing in the conversation when you talk about small farms, because we say, well, why don't small farms exist? And I was just reading and, 2019 uh the secretary of ag was up in wisconsin and he was talking about this is america you get bigger you get out and he was referencing dairy farm closures up there and if you ever look at the numbers it's it's horrible like hundreds per year over the last five years of dairy farms closed and then you have a shortage of cheese now so it's like oh wow (laughs) Wish we could have done something about that. Yeah. But unfortunately, with this model that we've employed, there isn't a benefit to being a small farmer. Because as you talk about efficiency, if everybody is going to plant 30-inch corn or 30-inch beans or whatever, pick your spacing. Yeah. I have nothing to offer from the small perspective. Besides less cash rent. Yeah. So you can take a guy that has five combines and 25,000 acres and tag on a thousand acres to him. And he's going to beat me every day of the week. Yeah. Beat you in what? Efficiency. and Yeah. Efficiency and in what he can offer for cash rent. Hmm. Yeah. So it would have to be the case 
where I could come in as a small farmer and have something better to offer. Yeah. And then you say, well, what is that? Maybe it's diversity. Maybe it's, uh, and I don't know if cover crops do enough as far as this goes, but you just keep talking about the conservation side of this. And I remember, oh, it was probably 10 years ago now, I went to a cover crop conference and I was listening, or it wasn't a conference, but it was what we would call professional development in the teaching field. <laughs> yeah. But there were producers that were talking about organic matter on their farm and this guy had pulled a fence out and his corn hit like 290 bushels to the acre there and the field was averaging 190. Hmm. So they started doing organic matter tests and where that grass had been for all those years, the organic matter is five times what it was wow. in the rest of the field. So you look at the the quality that of soil that has been lost through this type of production. And yeah. I know a lot of that points towards tillage practices that maybe have gone by the wayside with no-till and so forth. But you look at these maps of topsoil loss yep. for the Midwest, and it's still crazy. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're, so if you do enough with cover crops, I believe they then allow you to knife in anhydrous during the winter or in the fall or something like that. You're not allowed to do it if you don't have cover crops, if I remember correctly, in Iowa. And the problem with that is it's really water-soluble, soluble. So it almost isn't that much of a benefit to corn. But do you know what it does affect heavily? Your water. Get it by, by the time you're getting corn on the ground, it's already made its way into the rivers, and it's really heavily affected. And, the, and so you plant cover crop, knife and anhydrous, and a lot of the times the cover crop, they have a hard time coming up. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So, so uh, cover crop's a really cool idea, but it, it's, like a, it's like a slap of a Band-Aid. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They're like, hey, this, this will help. And I think because the USDA, the ad- administrative office can, or executive office can be like, hey, look at these millions and millions of acres of cover crop happening every year, which I mean... I'm friends with and in the industry with people who are making good money off of cover crops. Um, We were meeting with Chase Burns earlier today. He said a farm or a uh, acreage that's 1% better is still better. So Mm -hmm. I'm happy that cover crops is done, but for the amount of money pumped into it, I think we could, we could do better. But yeah, I think uh, uh, the, what you were saying as the organic matter in the soil, I mean, that kind of stuff only comes from 12,000 years of, of deep rooted, the 11 foot, uh, deep roots of mm-hmm. uh, big blue stem. You know what I mean? That's, it's hard to replace. Yeah. So a few months of growth here yeah, and there yeah. aren't going to compete. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, it is, it is. The point is there that it's, it's a step in the right direction. I think that especially for our generation, that's how we can make the biggest difference. We can do the things we're doing right now, having these hard conversations and uh, identifying problems so that we can provide education to the people around us to start making incremental changes. And those incremental changes, as they become more commonplace, you know, we, we, we always, you know, complain about conventional ag practices that have got us into this position. Well, what if we changed conventional ag practices to mean something that included, you know, more 
conservation, more uh, attention to uh, air, water, and soil quality, um, more conventional ag included more value on small farms, more value on a localized food chain. You know, if, if conventional ag becomes that in the next couple generations, then, you know, our grandkids and our great grandkids could be having a whole different conversation right now on their podcast, you know, uh, about, Hey, we need to keep these things going that, those before us established. And so I think it's exciting. You know, it's easy to just get, get stuck into a rut of, of complaining about the problem or whatever, but we do with there being such a present problem, we'll just say it that way with, with conventional ag practices and this industrialized agricultural system, it leaves the door open for lots of opportunity for positive growth and so, um, you know, I think take a lot of these things that we talked about. I think some of the other things we talked about in previous shows, pay farmers, uh, throw them some money for carbon credits, you know, whether that be through for trees or, you know, almost like the shelter belt programs of the 1930s, the FDR brought around to help cut down on the wind erosion during the Dust Bowl, get us out of the Dust Bowl. Uh, maybe we could even... Um, uh, you know, do an expansion of CRP or wetland reserve programs, things like that. Create some of these these ways for farmers to start getting money back immediately that can stay with them for the most part, right? There's still going to be a cost. And uh, uh, we'll be honest, we stand to gain from that as a company because we provide CRP grasses. We know that. But we're also uh, not... We're one step away from the farmer as opposed to 50 steps away from the farmer. And, and, um, that, that kind of, those types of changes can carry so much impact. And I think there's a lot of hope for the future that this gets better. And, um, you know, I think, uh, then we can start talking about the Fritch's seventh generation and eighth generation <laughs> yes. farm and yeah. and uh those you know they can be looking at those as their buffalo mark. hunting <laughs> yeah. buffalo spear That's hunting right. on their prairie stretches <laughs> of grass. And, and, the, and those uh hack marks and those hedge trees will still be there because hedge never rots <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they will be <laughs> but Man, uh, this any, was fun yeah any concluders guys uh, it's nine oh two. Is that enough of a yeah, concluder? I, we're, we definitely started turning into rambling old men here. As the, oh man, as the sun no, this is fun. I appreciate yeah. you having me on here. Yeah, yeah. Well, we really appreciate you coming on. We need to have you back on. We'll uh, we'll do maybe every year we can do a uh, a Fritch report or something like That'd that where good. we. We the old Fritch report. I'll start thinking about what I'm going to say now. Yeah, you, <laughs> there we go. You guys might think that uh, that. Fritch is just like some random friend. No, this dude is well-read. He is not messing around. So as much as you think you know about agriculture, unless you're a senator or something listening, which is really cool, you should let us know, uh, <laughs> he probably knows more about agriculture than you. He's well-read. He studies it. He's passionate about it. He cares about it. So He thinks we, about it. He thinks about it, yeah. Which is probably the most important thing. Yeah, he's got a brain himself. He's not a machine. Each piece of food Fritch picks up, I guarantee he thinks about where it came from. He may not say it, but he's thinking it. That's, that's part of the curse when, when you're like uh, Luke Fritch. Your brain never stops. But uh, it's uh, it's good, though. It's it's good to be thinking about those things, asking those questions. How did this get here, and how do we make it better? So is our rant over, guys? 
I, I think so, man. Officially My over. brain is fried. That was good. Yeah. Well, uh, until next time, make sure you get over to the Hoxie uh, Instagram page. Uh, our Facebook page is a little bit on hold. Nick uh, got hacked recently. And, I got uh, hacked, He's guys. the admin to our Facebook page. <laughs> they changed my profile pic to the ISIS flag. <laughs> yeah, they so he's do. like totally, he's totally shut down right now. I actually, I got a call from a friend at like 930 at night. He's like, bro, are you okay? Like, yeah, of course I'm okay. Why? He's like, dude, have you been on Facebook, man? Your, your profile picks the ISIS flag. And by the time, like he had seen Not it a good. minute after it was changed. By the time I checked, I was already banned off Facebook. And Facebook has, come on, Facebook, let's get it together. No call center, no email. You cannot reach <laughs> out to them. And so the only way is you can go through their process. And if it fails you like it's failing me, then, uh, man, Zuck, come on, brother. I'll, I will buy you a beer. I need, I need your help. <laughs> <laughs> he'll, buy, he'll buy the, uh, the uh, what are they, the MetaQuest Oculus uh, VR guys. I would. I would. If you fixed my Facebook personally, I would buy those and make a Facebook post about it. But uh, I guess they let off those 11,000 people. Those were, That was probably the call center. Oh, <laughs> That was no. probably. Yeah. But, but no, so we, we can't update that so much, but definitely follow us on Instagram right now. You'll find information from our latest podcast episodes. Also, check out uh, theprairiefarm.com if you have any seed needs. We can get you hooked up for pollinator CRP. Maybe you just want some better hunting habitat. Maybe you just care about that ground that you live on. Maybe you want a yard that is uh, growing with natives instead of invasives. Whatever it is, you can find it there at the Prairie Farm. We got a new dog mix that that has all the species and none of the species that uh, will get inside your dog's nose and infect it. So. Yeah, so all you bird dog people out there, yeah, we got good stuff there. Um, you'll also see us at Pheasant Fest coming up next month. Come on. Up in uh, Minneapolis. We'll be there. We'll have a booth, so stop by, shake hands, yell at us for this episode or whatever. We're, we'll be happy to see you. And uh, until next time, just like the Fritches have for six generations, remember, conservation happens one yard at a time. <laughs>